0: Welcome to all of you that are listening to this message. My name is David Thompson from the Fraser Valley in British Columbia. First of all, I just want to mention to those of you that are new that have not heard any of my messages that I am going to be sharing and do share all of my messages seeking to minister out of the Holy Spirit of God as the oracles of God. This is because the Word of God commands us saying in 1 Peter chapter 4, If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. In other words, we are to seek to speak to one another the words that are coming from God by His Spirit. This is basically ministering to one another in the spirit of prophecy. And that comes out of a consciousness of worshiping God while we are speaking, which allows the Spirit of God to rise up through us and to speak beyond ourselves in His presence. As Christ said, the words that I speak unto you are spirit and life." And part of what I do to facilitate that is I cast lots on all the chapters that are in the Bible with the potential of any chapter any day coming forth. And then I meditate on that chapter for about a half an hour, including making notes. And so what I'm going to be sharing today is some of the chapters I've recently received. I don't know for sure which chapter I will be preaching from, but I briefly want to share some of the chapters I've received of recent. And I know recently I haven't been preaching as frequently because of trying to get business on the internet going and other interferences but I will be honing in more into a consistency of ministering the Word of God, as I've also begun to discipline myself more with not staying up late and getting all my time with God, including this ministry and the Word done, first thing before anything else that I do in the day. So, I just first of all want to share with you some of the passages I received of and this goes beyond just this last week because I haven't shared for a while, probably for the, both the last two weeks to a week and a half. And so I'm just going to briefly mention the passages, first of all, some of the passages I received. Uh, going back to um, August the 15th, I received Genesis 28. And this is about Jacob uh, leaving and his parents and having that visitation from God at Bethel, which was before that time called Luz. Now, I'm not going to go into sharing about that right now. I'm just briefly mentioning what I received because I believe what I am receiving and seeking for God to lead me to by his sovereignty is to... The passage is not only that I need personally, but that God is seeking to minister to the body of Christ. Then I received Daniel chapter 6 on August the 16th, Um, and this is basically where they tried to devise plans against Daniel to his destruction, and he was thrown in the lion's den. And of course you know that God marvelously delivered him because there was no unrighteousness found in them. No ground for the enemy to attack him or accuse him. And then I received on Wednesday, amazingly, Daniel chapter 9, also in Daniel, which is where Daniel intercedes on behalf of the people of God, uh, and receives words from the angel as to what would happen at the very end of the age, and actually throughout the span of time as well. Uh, and then I received Ephesians chapter 3, where Paul expresses his zeal and his passion for God's ultimate purpose, which is to bring forth his corporate bride in local assemblies around the world, as Christ prayed in John 17, that we would be one with, in him, even as he is in the Father, and that is not only individually, but corporately. And that when that happened, that multitudes would be brought into the kingdom of God. Because he said that then, many in the world, I'm, I'm sure he, he was clear, that multitudes would believe in the world. Not that everyone would believe, obviously. Um, and then, on Saturday, I received Isaiah chapter 3. And this is where there is the apostasy in Israel that is described, where those that are leaders are very corrupt and they're like babes. And God describes his hate for pride and the severe judgment on those that know the truth and rather than embracing the truth, allowed themselves to fall into compromise to the point that their nation was at such a corrupt state where the leadership was corrupt and could not be looked up to. Obviously there was consequences whether God brought judgment or not because of the folly that was in their lives and total lack of wisdom which happens when we are alienated from God so that we make destructive choices that accumulate more and more with one another and ultimately manifest in chaos and anarchy and war and dictatorship. And then I received Exodus 15 on Monday, this last Monday, which is about going through the Red Sea, and uh, so that was a, quite an amazing passage as well. And. Tuesday I received Luke chapter 18 which is about persevering with faith and uh, Wednesday which is yesterday I received Psalms 115 and I just particularly dwelt on the word truth in this because of a, a particular verse which says not unto us O Lord, not unto us but unto thy name give glory for thy mercy and for thy truth's sake And that covers some of the passages I received of recent. And uh, I need to, I always have, at the beginning of my messages, need to take for some reason a drink of water. I tend to get over that as I continue to speak. Hmm. Excuse me there. Um, So I believe out of all of these passages, one of the passages that I feel will be the theme chapter will be Luke chapter 18. And so we're going to turn to Luke chapter 18. That's Luke chapter 18. And I will read that passage. And he spake a parable unto them to this end that men ought always to pray and not to faint, saying, there was in a city a judge which feared not God, neither regarded man though he bear long with them, I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? And he spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee and the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee, that I'm not as other men, are extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give thighs of all that I possess. And the publican standing afar off would not lift up so much as his eyes on to heaven. But smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For every one that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. And they brought unto him also infants, that he would touch them, But when his disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them unto him and said, Suffer, little children, to come unto me, and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of God. Verily I say unto you, Whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child shall in no wise enter therein. And a certain ruler asked him, saying, Good master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? None is good save one that is God. Thou knowest the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not kill. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor thy father and thy mother. And he said, All these have I kept from my youth up. Now when Jesus heard these things, he said unto him, Yet lackest thou one thing, Sell all that thou hast, And distribute unto the poor, And thou shalt have treasure in heaven, And come, follow me. And when he heard this, he was very sorrowful, For he was very rich. And when Jesus saw that he was very sorrowful, he said, How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through a needle's eye than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And they that heard it said, Who then can be saved? And he said, The things which are impossible with men are possible with God. Then Peter said, Lo, we have left all and followed thee and he said unto them verily I say unto you there is no man that hath left house or parents or brethren or wife or children for the kingdom of God's sake who shall not receive manifold more in this present time and in the world to come life everlasting and he took unto him the twelve and said unto them behold we go up to Jerusalem and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man shall be accomplished. For he shall be delivered unto the Gentiles and shall be mocked and spitefully entreated and spitted on. And they shall scourge him and put him to death. And the third day he shall rise again. And they understood none of these things. And this saying was hid from them. Neither knew they the things which were spoken. And it came to pass that that as he was come nigh unto Jericho, a certain blind man sat by the wayside begging. And hearing the multitudes pass by, he asked what it meant. And they told him that Jesus of Nazareth passeth by. And he cried, saying, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. And they which went before rebuked him, that he should hold his peace. But he cried so much the more, Thou son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stood and commanded him to be brought unto him. And when he was come near, he asked him, saying, What wilt thou that I shall do unto thee? And he said, Lord, that I may receive my sight. And Jesus said unto him, Receive thy sight, Thy faith hath saved thee. And immediately he received his sight and followed him glorifying God. and all the people when they saw it, gave praise on to God. Excuse me, just drinking some water. <clears throat> this passage I just want to pray before I begin to share in the spirit, what God is saying to the body of Christ and to you as an individual. Almighty God, Elohim, the Almighty's one, I ask in the name of Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus Christ, that you would speak by your spirit through me to the body of Christ what you would be saying in this hour that you would speak to me. I thank you for what you will reveal, and I ask that I would be hidden in you, that you and you alone would be pointed to, to through the ministry of your word. This particular passage in Luke 18 has a very clear and strong underlying theme, and that is summed up in the verse Verse 8, Nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth. This theme is actually in every particular scene that unfolds in this passage of Scripture. It all actually knits together in this chapter on whether you as an individual and the corporate body of christ will be in that place of faith when jesus christ returns in these last days and also in our own personal lives when he has his appointed time to visit us remember there was an appointed time for the lord to visit jerusalem and christ said weeping over jerusalem If you would have known the time of your visitation, I would have gathered you together as a hen gathers her chickens. But you did not know the time of your visitation. God is wanting us to be in that place of faith where we can be receptive to his visitation in our lives. Remember the scripture in Galatians that says, He that ministereth the Spirit among you, how does he do it? Does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? He does it, it says in Galatians, by the hearing of faith. Genuine faith is receptive to what God is saying and to who God is. In fact, if we are not receptive to the reality of who God is in our lives, we can never be open to hearing what God is saying to us. In fact, even conversion itself involves coming to the place where we are in a state of soul that we are receptive to receive the mercy and the grace of God. And therefore are also receptive to receive the hear of God, the word of God that is speaking deep in our soul and convicting us to that place where we let go of that state of being that is like a clenched fist before God and are broken of her pride into a hand of surrender and absolute trust in the reality of who God is, which is also a hand of receptivity. In fact, one of the Hebrew letters in the original Hebrew, which is a symbolic letter, is the letter that sounds like this, ka. And it is the symbol of an open hand, and it means to be receptive, to yield, to be open. And God is wanting his people to come into a place where they have this kind of receptivity so that they can be always prepared for those special times in their personal lives where God wants to speak to them and visit them, and also corporately through one another, to receive what the Spirit is saying to one another, and also corporately as a local body. God wants to visit your community, and he starts it by visiting the local assembly that has come into such a deep unity of faith. This faith is talked about in Ephesians chapter 4. God's purpose is that we would all come into the unity of the faith, of the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a mature man, unto the fullness of the stature of Christ. That we would henceforth be not those that are immature, that are tossed to and fro by every wind and slight and cunning of man and doctrine. That would lead us to deceptions of our own ways and apostasy away from God into what would be called the counterfeit conversions, the counterfeit revivals that God in these last days will begin to raise a standard against. And so I want to just explain a little bit more about this receptivity of faith. One thing that is not taught in the body of Christ about genuine faith, at least I have not heard it often taught, is that it requires great humility, which is birthed out of the genuine fear of God. Christ explains in many parables the importance of faith that is like a child. In fact, in the next part of the scripture here, we see humility described. But in this first section, before I get on to the second section, and of course that is in the first part here of the publican that is beating his breast before God, and also of the children that come unto him. And he says, except you be converted and become as little children, you can in no wise enter into the kingdom of God. The word faith itself has such significant meaning in the Greek and in the Hebrew. And I do believe in this case, I may have some information on that I'm just going to check right now. No, I don't. But I do know by memory what these words mean and so I can't explain them. And I do believe I do have somewhere in this passage actually that I am explaining this week. The word faith may be explained and I'm just skimming right now to see no it isn't. But that's fine. Faith comes from a Greek word that means is pistis It basically means moral persuasion. It means to become persuaded. In this case, a persuasion in who God is. Now, in the Hebrew it is interesting that I did explain what the word truth means because this word truth is also related to understanding the word faith in the Hebrew. The word truth, which I meditated on yesterday, is from a word, which is the word. It means truth, but it basically means stability. It's pronounced emet. And in the root of the Hebrew, this word emet doesn't have the end front. It's just met. Okay, that's the word truth but in its root it comes from the same root as the word faith. And the two letters that are the root, the first letter in the original letters of the Hebrew going back to 1500-2000 BC, which are symbol letters, is the symbols of water, which are the symbols of a way. Now water represents life. It basically means means a number of things in the original letter, and that is it means mighty, it means chaos, but it also means life and it means that which is... water symbolizes that which is filled with life and is very clear and transparent and can also be very straight when it's still. But it also has the potential, of wind is blowing on it, to become mighty to become very chaotic with terrible consequences. And likewise, when the wind of our soul rebels against God, it causes the waves of consequences because we reap what we sow in enmity with the one that is the very source of life. But this first symbol is water. And the next symbol is the letter Nun, which is actually, you see this Hebrew word, emet, comes from another Hebrew word, which is amen, which is the word for faith or belief. Amen. Now it's men, which is the mem, water, and n, which is the symbol of a sprout that are the root letters for these two words. And the noon, That word is the symbol of a sprout, and it represents continuance and inheritance, and also means son. It has the understanding, therefore, of life that continues without end. That which endures. The the word emet, meaning truth, means stability. It means what? is trustworthy, and the only thing that is trustworthy is life that can continue without end, because it has no corruption in it. And this word, the word amen, has the understanding, which is the word for believer faith, of building up or supporting to foster as a parent or a nurse to, because it's firm, It has the understanding that there can be a root that's so deep in the ground that the top can be broken off, but nothing can break that root. The storms of life may come along, but nothing can uproot that root. It will sprout and continue to bud fruit because it is rooted in what is ultimately trustworthy. Its roots have gone down deep. Moral persuasion is what that word means in the Greek, pistis and I could go into the various other renderings and the verbs and the nouns and so on, but there's no point in that. So, what is the fear of God? That's what I am writing a big book on and for a long time, and it's not just on the fear of God, but everything that comes out of that. To fear God means to make a choice, not from our intellect merely, but far more from our heart, to come to the place where we make a choice to recognize the reality of who God actually is. Instead of forming our own image of God, it is a choice to recognize the only quality that could possibly be ultimately trustworthy. And what quality is that? It is the quality that is the very being of God, and His being expressed to creation in in the reality of who He is, is actually what the word name means. Name has the understanding of what is real expressed. It is very similar from the root of the word soul, which has the understanding of what we are in reality to ourselves. Being who we really are in ourselves and to ourselves. And name is the understanding of that reality being expressed out to others. So the understanding of name is actually an understanding of being, it is the essence of the reality of one's being in its state and quality. And it is only God that has what is a state of being that is ultimately trustworthy because he has that quality of being that can contain unlimited life, unlimited power, and hold it without corruption or without being corrupted by it so that it can ever enlarge. And so what is that quality of God's being that we come to choose to recognize? It is that God is holy. And what is the holiness of God? It is the integrity of his love that will not tolerate the slightest that is contrary to love. It is a love that is so pure that it is a blazing fire of judgment against the slightest word, thought, or deed that would be contrary to it. This is the holiness of God or the protective aspect of his love. Love is that love that the Bible describes as agape, which is beyond feeling. It is a choice that always chooses. It is that quality that always chooses the highest lasting good over any more immediate gratification that would be less than the highest lasting good and thereby would have corruption in it. God's love will not tolerate corruption. It always chooses the highest lasting good because it is a consuming fire of such purity and integrity of love that it will not tolerate corruption. And it is only when we come to recognize that only that quality of being could be ultimately powerful and all-knowing that we are coming to face the reality of who God is, that we are truly coming to choose to fear God. What happens is we rebel against the holiness of God because the holiness of God brings the severe consequences of our choices and the choices of those around us and of this world that is turned away from God. So we see all the suffering and we say, God, if you allowed this, how could I possibly want you? And we form our own image of God, out of rebellion against the holiness of God. Instead, we should be brought to the place of recognizing that it is the holiness of God that is the foundation of wholeness, because it will not allow corruption, and therefore is the ground for wholeness, which is goodness or unlimited life and power that can can be contained in what is ultimately fulfilling and creative and can ever enlarge in realms of greater and greater creativity and fulfillment. And so we come to recognize that God is holy. And in recognizing that God is holy we recognize that He is the source of holiness. And in recognizing that He is the source of wholeness we recognize He is the very he is the very source of all good and of the ultimate, ultimate beauty. And so we know that King David said, One thing about I desired of the Lord, and that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. He desired to behold the beauty of God because he recognized the holiness of God as the source of of ultimate wholeness and of beauty and of goodness, and that it required the severe consequences of judgment, or God would be less than God. And in recognizing the holiness of God, which is, the, as it were, the ultimate negative for illustration for all the whole universe is made of negatives and positives, And there is the ultimate negative and positive which is actually an ultimate positive which is God. He is the ultimate source of life and the ultimate source of good because He is holy and will not tolerate corruption. And so God is recognized and in the recognition of the holiness of God without rebellion as the source of goodness and of life We cannot help but then conclude that God is ultimately good and what conclusion does that bring us to recognize? That he would not create his creation without providing them the opportunity for his purpose for which he created them which is that they might find ultimate destiny in him because he created them for his pleasure and in knowing who we are created for, which is for his pleasure, not only do we find our ultimate fulfillment and destiny, but God finds his ultimate purpose and pleasure in us for he created all things for our ple- for his pleasure. And so we recognize that if God is ultimately good, he must be able to provide a way of mercy. But the conclusion can only be how can he provide a way of mercy without violating the integrity of his love that requires judgment. And the only conclusion can be that it is because he is merciful because he has such a hot because he is not only perfect in love but ultimate in that perfection in that he himself is able to become a perfect atoning sacrifice for us. That his quality of being is so ultimate that he always was in reality the source of forgiveness because there always was in him that quality that in reality Is and became in Jesus Christ on the cross a perfect atoning sacrifice, so that he suffered more than you, a mere creature, and humbled himself more than you, a mere creature. Hard to grasp such love. And when we see those two aspects of the being of God, which is the ultimate negative and the ultimate positive, there's the flow of life like there is in electricity. That hard shell of electrons that's forming around the nucleus of our life that is in a state of pride and rebellion against God is broken when we recognize the reality of God. That though we deserve judgment in eternal hell and suffering, we can come to him and receive mercy. And so like the publican and the sinner that is in this next scene on this passage, We cry out from the depths of our heart because we come to recognize who God is. And we say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And there's a deep call from the depths of our being. And like the publican that would not even so much as lift his face to heaven, we cried out unto God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And we receive forgiveness and cleansing and the infused presence of the Spirit of God indwelling us. And so we are filled with thankfulness like the woman that Christ forgave who washed his feet with the tears of her hair and thankfulness because she loved much but when she found him those that have been forgiven much love him much. And it is in the exercise of the fear of God through prayer that we more and more recognize the greatness of his Forgiveness to us and come to love him more and more. That is why it says in the Word of God, as we've received Jesus Christ the Lord, so walk in him. It is in the same way we received Christ in genuine conversion, which I've just described, that we grow in him. There is that continual recognition of the beauty of the being of God in his holiness that springs forth in the beauty of God's being, in his truth which is, or pardon me, in his grace and his mercy that springs out of his truth or his holiness. Because what is truth? It is that quality that can only contain goodness without corruption. I have shared with you these two words, emet and amen, in the Hebrew. It is the recognition of of who God is, that he is the truth, that he is holy, that he is the truth because he's ultimately trustworthy only in the fact that not only is he holy, but that he is ultimately merciful to those that repent. It is in those, it is in that, that there is a recognition of truth of God could not provide destiny for his creation and the assurance of forgiveness, that would imply he's less than imperfect because he created creation that he could not give purpose to unto himself. So the recognition of what is ultimately true is in the recognition of the holiness of God and of God as the source of forgiveness which they recognize from the time of Adam and Eve till now that there was in him this ultimate quality that was so great that he himself was the source of forgiveness and that only in him could reside the quality of perfect atonement which was manifested in the time and space realm in Jesus Christ dying on the cross having God's love poured in his blood and his body broken for you that you could be cleansed white as snow and and receive eternal life. But was also a reality in God beyond the time and space realm, where God rules as the Father. He rules as the Son in the time and space realm and as the Holy Spirit filling all things. Three personages, and if God could not be in those ultimate realms as personage, He would be less than God and not almighty. I wanna go on and I wanna share with you in this passage of scripture that in this first passage, this woman doesn't give up. She's a widow, she's barren, she's powerless, but she doesn't give up. She continually comes before this judge to the point that this judge hears her prayer and answers it. She could have given up. She could have been convinced herself that this judge will never listen to her. But she had a persuasion in this judge that if she continued long enough, there would be breakthrough. It is true also that the faith that God is looking for in these last days requires perseverance. It requires enduring. It is through the enduring of trials that there is the proof that our persuasion in God is not just intellectual, but it has brought a conformity in our soul into conformity to the image of God. And so the next part of the passage here, which is describing the publican, is describing also the danger of what takes us away from genuine faith. And that is two things. Either we go the way of immorality with a deceptive image of God that does not acknowledge the holiness of God, or we go away and we, we look at God as someone that's like a Santa Claus that forgives everyone and embraces everyone or the other extreme extreme and some tendency where we are where we have become religious and we see God's holiness but we don't see the goodness of God in the holiness of God because we have begun to focus an image of God that is our own image that is based upon our performance, which is a God that is controlling and demands performance. And that is the error that Cain fell into. That is why he believed he could bring his own self-sufficiency of works before God and that it would please God. It was because he lost sight of the goodness of God behind the holiness of God, and the reason he lost sight of that was because in his heart he was offended at the holiness of God. In his mind he had convinced himself that he wasn't, but in his heart he was looking at God as an enigma, as someone that was distant and afar off, and so he had a distorted image of God. And there is archaeological evidence, which you can find through David Rowell, which isn't even a believer, but which is a renowned archaeologist, pointing out the existence of the city of Cain before the flood being an existence of a distorted image of God and of an idolatrous worship, which continued in the city of Aruda, which is the first city after the flood that they have discovered in archaeology. In which later on, Nimrod, which said in other writings that are found in clay tablets and in the writings of Josephus, that he would take vengeance on God because of the flood. So he was in rebellion against God and set up a a worship to the moon God in the Ur of Chaldees, which then spread to the Babylonians as time went on. And from there to the Arabs, where they have that black rock, that at that time, before the time of Muhammad, they worshipped what was called the God, which was known as the moon God. This is a distorted image of God that demands submission, but does not see the goodness of God, nor the mercy of God, and therefore is not ultimately trustworthy. The genuine fear of God perceives God as ultimately trustworthy in the fact that it recognizes the. Holiness of God, and thereby, out of that, the goodness of God from which springs the power of God to provide mercy and grace. And we have the danger, like the Jews, which at Mount Sinai said that they would love God. God commanded them to love Him and to fear Him. That was His first. What did they do? They got their eyes on the law. God never intended them to get their eyes on the law. And they made the Ten Commandments an idol. That was really self-worship of their own self-sufficiency and self-righteousness. They lost sight of their relationship, of having a genuine relationship with God, thinking that God only wanted performance. It became mere ritual. In this passage of scripture, as we go on, not only do we see in the first scene, the publican as the example of one that was accepted of God, but we see Christ describing the little children. And, they brought on to, and he brought unto him also infants that he would touch them. But when his disciples saw, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them unto him and said, suffer the little children to come unto me and forbid them not, for if such is the kingdom of God, and he says this statement, verily I say unto you, whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child shall in no wise enter therein. Here again, we see that amazing quality that is in faith, that is a a receptivity to God like a little child, a receptivity to who God is in His holiness and in His mercy that has total humility to cry, to laugh, to rejoice. It is only when there's genuine conversion that we become those that no longer are fearful of what others think, are concerned about what others think because we've found a trust relationship of being accepted in God that is far beyond concerning ourselves, whether we're accepted by other people. When there's really genuine humility, why would we be worried of what people think of us? What did Christ say to the Pharisees? He said, how can you believe which receive honor one of another? The thing that stops genuine faith is pride. And the root of pride is self-sufficiency. It is a state of self-worship. It is a deception of the heart that has a confidence in one's own sufficiency before God. When we are commanded to fear God, we are commanded to have... attitude before God, a total dependence out of reverence for the fact that he is our source and we are not the source of ourselves. When we recognize that God is our life source and that apart from him, he could send us to a place of eternal torment that never ended, that was worse than any torture in this world. When we recognize that, and that this is required for God to be ultimately good and ultimately trustworthy. How could we not do anything less? Then come into a state of humility and honesty. It is the fear of God that brings one to the place of humility. It is the fear of God that brings one to the place of honesty. And out of the fear of God is birthed the recognition of who God is in a quality that is ultimately trustworthy, which is His very name, which is his holiness and his love manifested in grace, which includes the mercy of God. And in that comes a brokenness, a release, a relinquishment of our own selves before God. Now in this next scene, we have Again, an example of the faith that the Lord is looking for when he says, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth. And this is the example of someone that was keeping the commandments keenly out of respect, a genuine respect and reverence for God. But the Lord says to him, Because he's wanting to know if he can inherit eternal life. And he says, well, I've done all this. And the Lord says, that's not enough to inherit eternal life. He says, you're lacking one thing. Sell all you have and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. Follow me. And of course, the man's sorrowful. Now the Lord tells him, why are you calling me good? There's none good but God. And that's referring to Elohim. The Almighty's One. It is a plural. And Elohim is the understanding of God as the Father beyond time and space, which is the source and sees the end from the beginning. And if he wasn't in personage in that realm, he wouldn't be God. If he wasn't in conscious intelligence and being beyond time and space, he couldn't rule over time and space. But he's also fully expressed in the creation as the Son. And the word Son means expression. And the Son is the exact and full and only expression of who God is. Who God the Father is. To communicate to this present realm. And so when this man here is saying, why callest thou me? When Christ says, why are you calling me good? There's none good. He is referring to the fact that you're looking at me as the source. When the source is Elohim, it includes me, but it is not the physical being of me that you're seeing. You're looking up to me instead of God. That is what Christ is basically saying. You're looking up to me for an answer when you should be looking to God to answer your question. But I'll gladly answer the question for you. You're lacking the willingness. And if you sell all you have, you can, don't you want to follow me? Just sell all you have, you can follow me. And he goes away sorrowful. And he says, how hardly shall they that have riches enter in to the kingdom of God? So if we are going to enter into inheriting eternal life, we cannot live For anything else is a priority for God, and it means that we must be, it must be in our heart of hearts to be willing to let go of all the things in this world so that God is the decision center and the government of our very being and heart. And so Peter says, We've done that, and the Lord says, That's great, you've done that because. You will not only receive rewards in this present world, but in the world to come, eternal life. Genuine conversion of the heart doesn't hold on to any self-sufficiency. Does that mean that we don't have a problem as believers giving up things? No. But we can bring those things before God. Ultimately, we must always decide to live onto the Lord and not onto the things of this world. And if we really recognize that he is our Savior, as we did when we were first converted, we will recognize therein that he is the Lord of our life. Because how can he be the Savior of our life if we are not receiving him as the Savior of our life? in an abiding, ongoing relationship. The Lord then begins to share, and I will share with you that I do have different comments, and so I should make comments here. He begins to share in verses 31 to 34 about himself. And he says, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the son of man shall be accomplished. For he shall be delivered unto the Gentiles, and shall be mocked, and spitefully entreated, and spitted on. And they shall scourge him, and put him to death, and the third day he shall rise again. And they understood none of these things, and this saying was hid from them, neither knew they the things which were spoken. Now there's an interesting point on this. Because we may at first in our walk be blind to fully realizing the truth of giving our whole life to Jesus Christ. And when the time comes, it may be a big shock that we did not expect in its outworking in our lives. Here they didn't understand yet. They had, and yet they had given up a lot. They had forsaken all, Peter said just before. They had given up, some of them, their wives and you know, good income to follow Christ. From doing their fishing. And yet they didn't fully understand how it could be that Christ would go through this. It was a veil. It just crossed their understanding, but it also was something they would go through as a shock in their lives. But God gave them the grace, and Peter Christ prayed for Peter that he would have faith even though his faith was sifted, that he'd come through, and he did. It is the same in our walk. Where we are presently at on our level with God, God is with us. But because we choose to buy of him the gold tried in the fire by praying each day, Lord, I choose to have you judge me and chasten me rather than to have my own way because I choose you as my savior and therein is my Lord. I choose to buy of you the gold tried in the fire. I would rather go through judgment now and trials now and be in a relationship with you. Because we choose that, there's an unfolding and a purifying process where we are being purified as it says in the word of God. Think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. For though your faith is tried, as gold is purified in the fire, nevertheless afterward, it will yield the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them that are exercised thereby. It is those that choose to buy of him gold tried in the fire that are his true sons, For what son does not receive chastisement from his father? And if you do not receive chastisement and testing from the father, you are not sons but bastards. The evidence of those that truly are born again and are continuing in an abiding relationship with God, of salvation with God, The evidence is that they do go through trials. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivereth them out of them all. And in that there is an unfolding process of greater and greater transformation. But God always gives the grace to go through the temptations and the trials and provides the ways of escape because he knows our frame that we are dust. He knows our weaknesses. He is the potter when we entrust our lives to him as the potter, and choose to buy of him the gold tried in the fire. This is what genuine faith is. It is a faith that will endure all things. It is a faith that is unconditional. As the Word of God says, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. And believe me, we can go through those kind of trials. Like the Lord himself went through. Where it just goes beyond our understanding. And we cannot help but cry out and say, God, why, why? Why have you forsaken me? And though we are saying that in our mind because it's a release from a burden. And releases us from what we can't understand. In our being there is a trust in God like Christ had on the cross. When he said, Father, into thy hands, I commend my spirit. He never lost his union with the Father. He's God. He never did become less than God. He was always God manifest in the flesh and the world, even when he was on the cross and experienced God's judgment, which was like a forsaking. He was still in union. He was still in a state where his soul and his spirit we're in a state like a surrendered hand that was totally pure. He was holy in his union with the Father. He is still God, manifest in the flesh on the cross. And it says in Romans 1.4, that Jesus Christ rose from the dead by the spirit of holiness. What was that? It was his spirit of holiness on the cross that was totally pure and did not become corrupt, but was totally in a state of selfless trust on the cross, which is a state of total, pure purity of love in the Father, even though he experienced the Father forsaking him. And that, my friend, is what we must have, is a faith that endures all things, that is unconditional, as the Word of God says, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Because in that, we will experience because we come through the other end, still trusting him, we will experience resurrection in our lives. Even as Christ experienced being raised from the dead, so we will be birthed into a totally new and greater realm of fruitfulness and relationship with God. We can trust him as the potter to bring us through all things. We can pray the hard prayers of surrender because we can trust in his grace because our confidence is not in the flesh. As Paul the Apostle said, we are the circumcision which worship God in spirit and in truth and have no confidence in the flesh or in our own sufficiencies or righteousnesses. genuine faith in this last part of the scripture here in verses 35 to 43 has a cry from the heart that will not be stifled nor put to silence to please our friends or people but continues to cry out regardless of the cost until there is deliverance and it came to pass that he was come nigh unto Jericho, a certain blind man sat by the wayside begging. And hearing the multitude pass by, he asked what it meant, and they told him that Jesus of Nazareth passeth by. And he cried, saying, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. And they which went before rebuked him that he should hold his peace but he cried so much the more thou son of david have mercy on me and jesus stood and commanded him to be brought unto him and when he was come near he asked him saying what wilt thou that i shall do unto thee and he said lord that i may receive my sight and jesus said receive thy sight thy faith hath saved thee and immediately he received his sight and followed him glorifying god And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise unto God. Are we those that will have a faith in God in these last days that will cause us to never be silent until Jerusalem goes forth as a torch that burns? Ye that make mention of the Lord keep not silence until Jerusalem goes forth as a torch that burns. Or are we going to hold our peace and be satisfied with the status quo? Christ said of the church of Laodicea, knowest thou not that you are wretched and blind and miserable and poor and naked? I counsel thee to buy me gold tried in the fire that thou mayest be rich and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed. And anoint thine eyes with eyesalve that thou mayest see. As many as I love I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous therefore and repent. That is what God is saying to the church today to do. He is not wanting us to be satisfied with going to a Pentecostal church or a charismatic church or whatever church it is where we have lots of times of prayer and maybe even times of fasting, but we're not willing to go all the way. We're not willing to have such a lavish love relationship with God that we let go of the control in our own lives personally that is a comfort zone, but also corporately. I am writing a book which has an in-depth outline in it That is a template for planning churches that will be open to the full headship of Christ inhabiting the body, and we need in these days to repent that we have not been willing to let the full headship of Christ inhabit our local assemblies. Oh, we have our little prayer meetings, and many of us complain that there's not many people that come to the prayer meeting. Forget the prayer meetings. Make your church service a prayer meeting. It should always begin with the leadership on their faces in contrition and awe of who God is and everyone else included. Until we know a breaking of our pride and humility, till we know what it is to be sensitized to who he is in our midst and to his speaking, and out of that humility will come forth Great praise, great liberty, great joy, the powerful moving of the gifts of the Spirit of God. So, in this outline, I could have shared a lot that was in it, but it could be related here, and I'd be preaching for hours. But it should be soon down this book, and it's an in depth outline in everything that should be in the local body so that we will fulfill John 17 in our local s- assemblies in these last days. We can no longer can just be satisfied. It is time to become as bride without pure that is pure and without spot or wrinkle. I can tell you when a body of believers in a community or a city comes into this kind of unity with God and with one another out of the genuine fear of God, the glory of God will come down like it did in the Welsh revival and multitudes will come into the kingdom of God. Except in this end-time move, there's going to be the government of God that can can, contain the glory where man doesn't get in the way and hold back and begin to stop a revival so that it doesn't continue. No, this end-time move will not be another revival. It will be the restoration of all things. It will be the bride coming forth from glory to glory that will consummate in the Lord returning on the Mount of Olives and the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven. In the meantime, may we come into this unity so like in Isaiah 24, when that great destruction comes upon the democracies of the world that have become corrupt, probably by atomic bombs, who knows what God will use. But when it comes, it describes multitudes and congregations praising him in the midst of the fires in Isaiah 24. So maybe I will conclude with turning to Isaiah 24 and just reading that verse. And so I'm turning now to Isaiah 24. That is Isaiah 24. And I just want to read this particular verse which describes this great destruction and also the earthquake that will be the earthquake that will bring in the kingdom of God. that is also described in the book of Revelation in the last days. And I want to describe to you this particular part. And it says, When thus it shall be in the midst of the land among the people, it's the shaking of an olive tree and is the gleaning grapes when the vintage is done they shall lift up their voice, they shall sing for the majesty of the Lord, they shall cry aloud from the sea. Wherefore glorify ye the Lord in the fires, even the name of the Lord God of Israel in the isles of the sea. Even the name of the Lord God of Israel in the isles of the sea. For from the uttermost part of the earth have we heard songs, even glory to the righteous. But I said, my leanness, my leanness. And that's the passage I wanted to describe. This describes the return of Christ, setting up the millennial kingdom. I could go on to read it, but for time I will not. Begin to take action in your situation by beginning to pray with others to bring forth God's purpose. Support me in what I am doing in my ministry. Financially, I am in a lot of debt right now which I won't bother to explain, but I want to get out of it and into a place where I can give myself and where this book can be used and the other books that I am soon to finish to bring forth with others, be cooperating with God to bring forth his bride in these last days. Thank you for listening to this message.